Welcome to Citizens Climate Radio, your climate change podcast. In this show, we highlight people's stories, we celebrate your successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. I'm Ruth Abraham. And I'm Lila Powell. Welcome to episode 85 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project, Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Friday, June 30th, 2023. In a recent episode of Citizens Climate Radio, everyone's favorite podcast host, Peterson Descano said something along the lines of, Y'all are learning too much too fast. You're going to be taking this thing away from me. I could just see it right now. <laughs> so Ruth and I decided to take over and put this show together for you. Dana Nucitelli is back with the Nerd Corner. Today he's going to be talking about carbon pricing. In fact, most of this episode will be about carbon pricing. Today we'll be hearing from two climate enthusiasts and how they work with carbon pricing in their daily lives. We interviewed Naomi Schimberg in the USA in Akwanda Maseko in South Africa to hear their thoughts about carbon pricing. You're a waterfall, I'm a fire. No surprise we don't go together. But it took us a while before we figured it out. Naomi Schimberg grew up in Rhode Island and now lives in Connecticut and attends Yale University. Naomi studies ethics, politics, and economies, which she picks since it's a broad major. Her true passion is in climate economics. And like a lot of us interested in climate advocacy, Naomi had a moment that really pulled her into environmental work. The summer after my first year, I worked in a backcountry hut on the Appalachian Trail. Really felt like the tug of the wilderness and like the tug of the earth, really. And like that, that was what I decided I wanted to do. And so then since then, I, I started Yale has a program called Energy Studies. So I, I do that. I mainly have focused on environmental economics and climate policy at Yale. Naomi's on the team of a podcast that took a deep dive into the topic of carbon pricing. Pricing Nature is a podcast that tells a story about the economics, politics, and history of carbon pricing. It's a project of Yale's Tobin Center for Economic Policy. So I was a sophomore at the time. I applied to a job to work at the Yale Carbon Charge, of which Casey Pickett, who's the host of the podcast, is the director of. I was totally underqualified for the job. I had just taken one course. It was Bill Nordhaus's course. He was a Nobel Prize winner, but still, like, I didn't know anything. But I wrote in my application to this, like, graduate student researcher position that I had done research on the social discount rate, which is a really important metric in determining the social cost of carbon. I didn't get the job. I didn't even get an interview. But I got a really weird email out of the blue from Casey Pickett, who I I didn't know who he was at the time, saying, I've heard that you do research on the social discount rate. Can you come give me a presentation? I forwarded the email to my parents. I was like, what is this? But I like got all dressed up, made a PowerPoint presentation. Casey's office is, is in like the provost's office, which is like a skyscraper on campus. It's very intimidating. And I gave up my little presentation and Jacob Miller, who's also the senior producer and sound engineer on the podcast, was there. I gave my presentation and they liked it and they kind of were like, should she just come work on the podcast? And so then they were like, do you want to work on this with us? The first episode I worked on for Pricing Nature was the uh, first episode of our last season, which is called What's the Right Price for Carbon Emissions? And it's a very technical episode about the social cost of carbon. Casey tore apart the first draft. And it was a really amazing experience for me because I think it was the first time where an adult had ever engaged so vehemently in my writing. And I'm very like lucky to have that. But I remember like being very (laughs) hurt. Um, Not hurt. Hurt's not the right word, but upset 
what I've learned is each sentence has to be one phrase and you have to get to the point like immediately. You need to speak clearly and you need to enunciate like all of that. And in terms of interviewing, I've also learned just like how to challenge people who may, may have much more tenure than I do or people whose politics I disagree with, which are also really important skills. Bipartisanship is essential to do effective climate work. Naomi even describes their political party as geekiness. <laughs> we asked Naomi to get geeky and tell us more about carbon pricing. I would say the basic idea is how are we going to put a value on the preservation of nature? The place where I would start, where the experts start, is talking about externalities, what we price in the economy, what we can see, what we value by putting a dollar on it. We might pay for certain things that we value, but there's also pollution. We don't fully capture the negative effects of pollution, specifically greenhouse gas emissions. We don't pay for those climate impacts. So carbon pricing is all about internalizing those externalities. We have something called the social cost of carbon, which in an ideal world is what we would pay to fully internalize those externalities. And that, you know, that number started pretty low. The first interagency estimate was somewhere in the order of magnitude of around $30 per ton, $40 per ton. Now people are saying the new Biden social cost of carbon might be somewhere as high as $150 per ton. And so that's the number that a carbon pricing bill should be if it theoretically wants to internalize all of the externalities. If this is going to be a tax, which in some cases it is, how are we going to spend that revenue? The politics are very different than the economics, which I think is the most important lesson that I've learned working on pricing nature. To the progressives, um, David Roberts says it best. I think he says like carbon pricing, and this was in referring to the Washington's new carbon pricing bill. Carbon pricing should, should just be in the background, sort of like mopping up the dirt. I would say in the beginning, and like when I started doing this work, I would not have gotten behind that. I would say, no, carbon pricing is a really important policy. We should set the price as high as possible. And I still think we should be setting prices, you know, as high as they can be politically tolerated. But I don't think that they are the silver bullet at all. And I think it's a much broader set of regulatory and community-based programs that should be addressing this issue. That is hard because in, you know, all aspects of democratic politics, I feel like, you know, there's pressure from both sides and in the end, you don't get anything that you want. I think that happens a lot where everyone wants something different and then nothing happens at all. That's why Citizens Climate Lobby does a lot to reach out to both conservatives and progressives. The goal is to pass bipartisan legislation. People of color, low-income individuals live in communities that have historically experienced disproportionate pollution burdens. We need climate policies that will improve equity and will reduce pollution in certain areas more than other areas. The power of carbon pricing is that it does not do that. It tries to reduce pollution most efficiently, which is not targeted. And so there's like a fundamental disconnect between what many progressives want, or maybe what many environmental justice organizations want, and what people from the right who you know believe in market-based solutions also are very valid in saying, we want the solution that will reduce emissions in the cheapest way. And you know the way to do that is to find those plants that are most expensive, try to move them you know off the market or towards renewables. 
the question I asked myself after I decided I wanted to work in this space was like, how can I best contribute to it? For me, I think it's through economics and research and being able to answer people's questions when they say, why does this investment make sense? This podcast has been a really important period of growth for me and understanding how I want to communicate my politics and or just communicate my economics to people, which is a really important skill that I'll, I'll take with me. So I would say I would probably leave the field of audio journalism, but certainly not the field of climate economics and policy. Now it is time for the Nerd Corner, hosted by Dana Nuccicelli, Citizens Climate Research Coordinator. Hi, I'm Dana Nuccitelli, and this is the Nerd Corner. I'm here to highlight some interesting new climate research for the nerds out there, and to make it understandable for the nerd curious. In this episode, we consider the question, how well is carbon pricing succeeding around the world? The answer is, better than you might think. As of 2022, nearly 70 countries, states, and provinces had carbon pricing policies. That is to say, they tax or otherwise raise the price of fossil fuels like coal, oil, and natural gas based on how much carbon pollution they emit when burned. Just as tobacco taxes strongly discourage smoking cigarettes, so carbon taxes are a powerful way to discourage the use of climate-polluting fuels. Carbon pricing also encourages consumers and businesses to switch to cleaner alternatives like renewable energy and electric vehicles. As the world's top producer of oil and gas, the United States has powerful interest groups that resist carbon pricing. Even so, 11 northeastern states belong to the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. That's a system that puts a price on carbon emissions from the power sector. And California covers about 80% of its carbon pollution with a rising price. At the start of 2023, the state of Washington joined their ranks with a similar program one that aims to slash the state's emissions 95% by 2050. Despite all that, critics often say carbon pricing is political poison that will never win voter approval. They ignore the fact that in 2019, our oil-producing neighbor to the north, Canada, passed a broad national carbon fee and dividend, one that rises every year. They also ignore the fact that the European Union has reaffirmed its commitment to climate mitigation, by driving its carbon price above $100 per ton of carbon dioxide. Economists say global warming could be kept to a manageable 2 degrees Celsius if the world adopted a carbon price of just $75 per ton by 2030. Polling consistently shows the American public also favors taxing carbon polluters to help pay for the green transition our economy needs. We know it can get enacted, we know it works, and with a powerful citizens' movement, we can make it happen. I'm Dana Nuccitelli with The Nerd Corner. Thanks for being curious and for your commitment to climate progress. Join the discussion about climate science, technology, economics, and policy with CCL's research team. Check out The Nerd Corner at cclusa.org slash nerd corner. That's cclusa.org slash nerd corner. I hope to see you there. Thank you, Dana. If you have a question for Dana, email us at radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. We'll make sure he gets your question. 
and read more analysis by Dana by visiting cclusa.org slash nerd corner. That's cclusa.org slash nerd corner. So we've heard from Naomi in the U.S. Now let's hear about Naquanda's climate work abroad. Naquanda Masego hails from South Africa. She currently serves as a budget analyst with a background in development economics. Her niche background makes her an innovator in her field. I am a queer black woman. I don't necessarily always identify as a woman, but um, I think that's one of those big identities that exist within me. And that particular identity helps me to frame how I decide to live my life, but also how I do the work that I do. Probably growing up extremely poor as well, just helped me frame how I think about the economy in terms of what does equitable distribution look like. And I always like to describe it as at the intersection of climate change, just transition, obviously, gender, as well as industrial policy. Naquanda is able to make connections to topics that are seemingly separate. In fact, Naquanda helps us bridge the gap between economics and climate change. South Africa ranks in the top 10 most developed African nations. But this comes with its own challenges. Right now, because of the droughts that have been going on, we're facing food scarcity, we're facing food security issues, we're facing water security issues. And, you know, that water is not just disappearing. Most of it is going to industrial agriculture, which is a thing that's also growing in South Africa. And we see that even in the types of crops we're growing. Sure, South Africa is still growing maize, which is a staple food in South Africa, but we've now also done the American thing. We're trying to move everything so that we're producing soya beans. It's scary for me because within the context of climate change, we also have to look at questions of food security, but we don't seem to be considering that right now. We're just looking at, okay, but what's going to help farmers get the most money? It's not complicated. It's just the way that we think about it. I think we've we've tended to look more at what's going to drive organizational growth in terms of profits, what's going to put more money in business owners' pockets than we have looked at, but how is this affecting the climate and what does it mean for the people that survive on that food? I just tend to think of it as intersecting with different aspects of society. Naquanda is able to speak about the current economic state of South Africa so well. But the country is also suffering from a troubled past. Apartheid-era rule still has its effects on the transportation sector to this day. We also face the issue of really horrible apartheid-era spatial planning. So all the workers, and in this case, all the workers are Black and Essentially, all the madams or all the bosses are white, right? So all the workers live outside of the cities and 
they have to figure out how to get into the cities for work and then get out of the cities to go back home. The problem is there is no centralized public transportation. Yes, there are taxis, those are minibus taxis that ferry people to and from work. But if you look at just how bad the condition of some of those taxis are, it's very scary that every day people get into those cars and go to work. With regards to public transportation, prior to 1994, I don't think it was a thing that was thought of to say, well, actually, we need to figure out how to transport these groups of people, the majority of whom are Black. Essentially, then Black people have to figure out how to get to and from work with very disjointed public transportation. If you look at the existing rail infrastructure, yes, there are, I think it exists in about four provinces in South Africa, rail. So in Gauteng and the Western Cape, it's used to carry passengers. I think it's the same thing in KZN and the Eastern Cape. But most of what exists right now is actually used to carry freight to export terminals. But even then, there were changes in, 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 in like the late 80s, early 90s, which saw the bulk of South African freight move from rail to road. When you look back right now at those decisions, you can see where the problem started in terms of living that infrastructure and cared for to the point where now it's very difficult to figure out how to create a rail system that will transport most South Africans. They've tried it with the Hau train, which is heavily subsidized by the state, but even then it's not a very consumer-friendly thing. It's a very upper-middle-class form of transportation. Even I, as someone who's generally considered as part of the middle class, whenever I have to use the how train, I, I, I do a double take because why is it so expensive? And to even think of the fact that it's subsidized by the state. In South Africa, there's also then questions of safety. There's quite a lot of violence. And I don't want to sound insensitive here. We don't necessarily have too many mass shootings as happens in the States. But there is so much violence in this country that as a person, as a woman, as a Black person, as a queer person, it's very difficult to just get into public transit and be assured that I can travel at any time. So therefore, the better option for me that has the resources is to buy a car. It's about bringing together the many different aspects of, you know, public safety, but also centralized transport systems, which would then make it easier for us to have the conversation about moving towards public transportation rather than having our own private vehicles. Unfortunately, transportation is not the only sector that's affected. Black South Africans have been involved in the informal economy, 
Therefore, they are not responsible for a majority of the emissions. Most of that comes from energy production, which has heavily relied on coal. The energy infrastructure is quickly falling apart, and there is a hope that renewable energy will become a workable alternative. But will that energy be available to all? As I said, I grew up in a rural area. It was not until I was about 11 or 12 that we had electricity at home. There are people right now living in areas where there is no electricity. Even those emissions from coal, they don't necessarily always come to the benefit of black people. But that said, if we step away from the energy conversation, again, you find that the people that are going to feel the impact of climate change the most are Black people. Also, you have to consider that in the context of there's so many things that we have to address for, that we have to solve for. So right now we're talking about the just transition. The gap there is that we're so focused on what do we do about the workers that are going to lose jobs. We're not thinking about the fact that there are people who don't necessarily have jobs, the majority of whom are Black, who are then left out of the just transition conversation just by virtue of them not having jobs. It's also there for women. Women cannot transition from jobs that they do not have. In the context of everyone, people cannot transition from jobs they do not have. And so how do we then talk about this as a just transition if we're only talking about a small proportion of People in South Africa, as you know, we have very high unemployment. And so that tells you that the conversation about the just transition, if we're just focusing on labor, is about that small subset of about 14, 15 million people out of a total population of almost 59 million people. And so what does a just transition look like in that context? It it, it has to be about justice. How do we take care of the people that have contributed the list to climate change, but are going to feel the impact the most? And we're seeing that in terms of the biophysical impact of climate change, we're seeing that in the drought, we're seeing that in the constant flooding. So how do we then have a conversation about how to assist that person and make sure that they're not left behind in the conversation about a just transition, but also leave them with enough autonomy to actually decide for themselves what it is they want to do, what kind of help they need, and where they want to go with their future. Disproportionate effects of climate change, along with economic inequity, impacts South African agriculture as well. 
for the longest time when I was a child, I remember around summertime, you know, you I would be able to go outside, just take a few few steps and I could get a cob of corn right from the plant. But what has happened over the years is that nothing grows anymore. There was a point where the maize would grow about um, knee length size and then it would just start browning. So then my grandmother stopped farming the whole homestead, tried to focus on just a small portion. This is not just the experience of my grandmother, it's, it's the experience of many people around the country who are now struggling to grow food that they can then sell because of climate change. And so they're trying to grow whatever few stuff that they can grow and feed their families. But when we start from the point of justice and expanding the table so that more people are involved, I think it gets us much closer to where we are trying to go with this particular conversation in this particular context of trying to make sure that people are surviving and living and thriving. Many thanks to Naomi Schimberg and Nkwanda Maseko for enlightening us on carbon pricing. Make sure you check out the podcast, Pricing Nature. It's available wherever you get podcasts. You can also follow Nkwanda on Twitter at N-D-A-K-W-A-N-O. You can also take a meaningful next step and learn more about carbon pricing. Check out our Dig Deeper link on the Citizens Climate Radio blog post. Since we know you've missed him this episode, our good news story today comes from Peterson. In March, I got to travel to Washington, D.C. and lobby my member of Congress. It was incredibly exciting to be back in the Senate and House office buildings. In fact, it was the first CCL in-person lobby day since before the pandemic. I joined CCL's conservative conference members for this day of lobbying, and it was a huge success. It was amazing to watch how conservative lawmakers responded to these conservative lobbyists. It culminated with the reception on the Hill with members of Congress present. Republican Representative John Curtis from Utah founded the House Conservative Climate Caucus, and he told us that that is the largest caucus in the House, with over 80 members. (laughs) As someone committed to bipartisan climate action, I was incredibly thrilled to hear that. So that's really good news. And CCL has done it again with an even bigger bipartisan lobby day earlier this month. Back to you, Ruth and Lila. You're doing a great job. If you have good news you want to share on the show, email me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Thank you for joining us for episode 85 of Citizens Climate Radio. Special thanks to the members of our advisory board, Tamara Staten, Maggie Steinbach, Katie Zarkreski, Sharon Bagatelle, Callie Roach, Solemi Hernandez, Hannah Rogers, Sean Thague, and Brett Thies. This episode of Citizens Climate Radio was written and produced by us, Ruth Abraham and Lila Powell, with support from Peterson Toscano. 
Other technical support from Ricky Bradley and Brett Cease. Social media assistance from Flannery Winchester and Saida Nakvi. Moral support from Madeline Para. Please share Citizens Climate Radio with your friends and colleagues. You can find Citizens Climate Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at northernspiritradio.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Citizens C Radio. That's Citizens, the letter C, radio. Citizens C Radio. Visit citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog to see our show notes and find links to our guests. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. A changing climate presents humanity with only one option, adapt. Join podcast host Doug Parsons on America Adapts. In this podcast, Doug interviews scientists, activists, policymakers, and journalists to discuss how society is going to adapt to all the climate impacts now and in the future. Drought, sea level rise, extreme events. The climate is going to change and we need to be prepared for it. Question your assumptions, refresh your perspective, and become part of the climate movement that will determine our planet's future on the America Daps podcast. You can find America Daps on all your favorite podcast apps or visit americaadapts.org. Conservative and concerned about climate change? You're not alone. My name is Chelsea Henderson, and I host RepublicEN.org's Eco Right Speaks, bringing you weekly guest interviews and stories. John Kasich, Christine Todd Whitman, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, meteorologist Marshall Shepard. Each week, we have a conversation with an Eco Right leader, bringing you information, opinions, personal stories, and much, much more. Download, listen, subscribe, and join us each week on the Eco Right Speaks.